0: Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation, a weekly unrehearsed public affairs program on the Columbia Broadcasting System. The first presidential debate of the modern era was 1960, right? No! The first presidential debate of the modern era was 1976, when Jimmy Carter squared off against incumbent President Gerald Ford. It was the first time a president participated in a debate in American history, and it was these debates that set the tone for the ones we see today, which aren't really debates at all. It also contained the greatest campaign gaffe ever launched in a debate. We'll get to all of that in a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. The Great Courses is back because learning doesn't stop after we finish school. And if you want to be an autodidact, well... You must learn from the Great Courses, and so here are some new offerings from the Great Courses Scientific Secrets for a Powerful Memory, How Conversation Works, Art of Public Speaking, Influence, Mastering Life's Most Powerful Skill. And there's a special limited time offer, order any of these four business and presentation courses for just nine ninety five. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com GreatCourses.com whistlestop. Our whistle stop today is September 23rd, 1976, and we are at the Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where the first presidential debate is taking place, the first in American history where a sitting president is taking part in the festivities. Gerald Ford stands erect in a three-piece suit, and to his right stands a slightly shorter man, Governor Jimmy Carter. Let's listen to them in a rock'em-sock'em exchange.
1: Well, one of the very serious things that's happened in our government in recent years, and has continued uh, up until now, is a breakdown
0: in the trust among our people and the... Wait, what happened? Where did the governor go? Did your Wi-Fi drop out? Have you paid your phone bill? I think it's the subway going into a tunnel. Well, you must have done something right, because you're still hearing me. Still, what happened to Governor Carter? Well, the pool
1: broadcasters from Philadelphia have temporarily lost the audio. It is not a conspiracy against Governor Carter or President Ford, and they will fix it as soon as possible.
0: That's Harry Reisner. The debate was eight minutes from its completion. And then the sound cut out. And it wasn't a momentary glitch. The sound was out for 27 minutes, enough time in 1976 to prepare and get halfway through one of those meatloaf and potato family dinners. While the audio buzzed and the television broadcasters tap danced on all three networks to an audience of close to 100 million, the two candidates stood mute behind their lecterns. They didn't say anything to each other, Ford and Carter. They just stood there, sipping water and struggling to retain their dignity, but looking like two schoolchildren who'd been caught fighting and had been reprimanded and put in the corner to think about what they'd done to the country. Men with drastic comb-overs in shirts with vast pointed collars screamed emergency instructions into the phones. The chaos was so loud that while the correspondents were interviewing members of each campaign to pass the time on television, the audience could hear the yelling that was going on in the earpieces of the correspondents. In the end, after close to 30 minutes, it was determined that a 25-cent part, about the size of a cigarette butt, had been identified by engineering Sherlock's as the little gremlin that had silenced the presidential debate for half an hour. It was a tube of foil paper and chemicals known as the electrolic capacitor, not to be confused with a flux capacitor, mind you, which played a role in the 1988 debate over whether Back to the Future was really a good movie. The electronic capacitor was like a burnt-out bulb at a Christmas tree stand, which could not be fixed without testing each of the bulbs one by one in the series. It was an amazing spectacle, ending the first debate in chaos, just as the debate had started in chaos, or I should say almost didn't start at all. This debate, the first with a sitting president, was sponsored by the League of Women Voters, who would not let the networks do any cutaway shots of the audience. So that the network said crimped their ability to tell the story of the moment. And at one point in the negotiation between the broadcasters and the League of Women Voters, the CBS executives stormed out of the meeting and said they just weren't going to show the debate at all. In the end, the debate went forward. There were no audience shots. Of course, as you know now from the madness that is our current Debates. There are lots of audience shots, at least in the debates in the parties that take place in the primaries. The reason I'm focusing on these debates is because 1976 was the first time we had a sitting president, and and it hadn't always been that way. Lyndon Johnson didn't debate, neither did Nixon, but Ford had to debate. And it kicked off a tradition that continues into the present day. So when Ford, for political reasons, decided to debate, it sort of locked in the idea that the presidency was not so vast and so above the process that it meant the president didn't have to debate. And now no president conducts the debates the way uh, Johnson and Nixon did. The reason Ford wanted to debate was uh, he wasn't doing very well. Carter was significantly ahead in the polls. So by the first debate, Carter was ahead by 18 points. Um, Ford had come through that ugly summer fight that we talked about several issues ago with Ronald Reagan, which culminated not in the victorious speech from Gerald Ford about his coming candidacy and the greatness that was due America, but uh, that convention ended with everybody wanting Ronald Reagan to be the nominee, but of course... He hadn't. And so there were unhappy conservatives and nobody was really very excited by Gerald Ford. So by the end of the Democratic convention that summer, Carter was up 33 points in the polls. So Ford had to do something to challenge Carter. And the hope was that in with these debates, the free airtime would help improve his situation. Ford's situation wasn't just that he'd had that bruising fight with Reagan. It wasn't just that he had pardoned Nixon and and hit that bruise that national bruise uh, left after Watergate and the idea that the whole thing was rigged and so once again it was rigged here you had Ford letting Nixon off the hook the other problem with Ford and the reason he needed to have a big free media moment that 100 million people could watch was that and we mentioned this before in the Ford Reagan fight was that Ford was considered this sort of plodding speaker, awkward and unfamiliar with his native tongue. And that was very much in part thanks to Saturday Night Live, the new comedic sensation that was regularly lampooning the president. It was Chevy Chase who uh, made funny of Mr. Ford. And so we'll listen now to a little uh, a little of Chevy Chase's impression.
1: My fellow Americans, ladies and gentlemen, members of the press and my immediate family. First, may I thank you all for being here, and I am, and my immediate family. First, may I thank you all for being here, and I am, and my immediate family. Thank you all for being here, and I am truly honored to be asked by you to open the Saturday night show with Harvey Cosell. <laughs>
0: Given that backdrop, if Ford could put together sentences in a row without too much trouble, he might be able to come out ahead. And Ford was pretty confident he could do it. Carter, for his part, wanted to debate too because he wanted to show he could go toe-to-toe with the president and show that he had expertise outside of just having been a governor, that he could speak to foreign policy and be uh, facile with those concepts so that people would feel okay with handing over the presidency to him. And so... The debate negotiation started. Everything was negotiated down to the last little sentence period and spaces between each letter. The Carter folks, for example, didn't want the moderators to refer to Ford as Mr. President because they thought it gave him an unfair advantage. So they just wanted him to be called Mr. Ford. They also had a special measurement. They didn't want the lecterns Too close to each other because if they were in a two-shot, it would accentuate the fact that Ford was so much taller than Jimmy Carter. But it turns out when that first debate happened, the distance, the podiums, was not a problem for Carter at all. He had a much bigger problem, which was that just days before the debate, a bombshell hit the Carter campaign. Or rather, it was Carter talking about bombshells that hit his campaign. In an interview that Carter had done with Bob Shear in Playboy some months before, Some extraordinary comments by Carter were revealed to the press corps and the public. The cover of the issue of Playboy read, Now the real Jimmy Carter on politics, religion, the press, and sex in an incredible Playboy interview. And on the cover, Playmate Patty McGuire was removing her top. So this was a fascinating (laughs) turn of events because Jimmy Carter was running as a, a Baptist, a good solid, thorough man, afraid of uh, a revengeful God. Well, that's not true. He wasn't afraid of a revengeful God. He was just a good, upstanding Christian. And in the wide-ranging interview, he was quoted as saying, I've looked on a lot of women with lust. I've committed adultery in my heart many times. This is something that God recognizes I will do, and I have done it, and God forgives me for it. But that doesn't mean I condemn someone who not only looks on women with lust, but who leaves his wife and shacks up with someone out of wedlock. Christ says don't consider yourself better than someone else because one guy screws a whole bunch of women while the other guy is loyal to his wife. The 1970s were an exciting time, mores were changing, and here was the straight-laced candidate showing that he was in sync with the general recline of the times. He could wear those bell-bottom jeans too, man. He could use the lingo too, man, which is what screw was. Carter's statement was the perfect political gaffe, wrote James Baker, the longtime political strategist and advisor to Republicans and Secretary of State and Treasury. Baker wrote that, And at this time, Baker was running the Ford effort. Baker wrote, It hurt Carter with almost every group. His fellow Southern Baptists, for instance, were offended that he gave the interview without condemning Playboy's role, in what they saw was the coarsening of the culture and weakening of traditional sexual morality. Some voters simply thought it was funny for a presidential candidate to talk so openly about his lustful thoughts, and others were troubled by what they saw as his excessive religiosity. The episode cast doubt on Carter's judgment and political skills. Frank Irwin, a conservative Democrat from Texas, printed bumper stickers saying, God doesn't want you to vote for Jimmy Carter. Baker further wrote, Meanwhile, we had to decide how to respond. It's inevitable on the painfully long campaign trail that a candidate will at some point say something controversial. The opposition then has to figure out whether it will gain more by speaking up or keeping quiet. The determining factor is often whether the press itself can be expected to keep the story alive. And on lustful thoughts, reporters were doing just fine. Thank you. Without any help from us, neither the president nor Bob Dole said a thing. Bob Dole, of course, being Ford's vice president and, which we'll later come to discuss, the hatchet man of the campaign. So the fact that Dole didn't even talk about it gives you some sense of how well this was working on its own. The Carter campaign pretended everything was fine. And on the day the article came out, it Xeroxed the pages and passed them around the press corps who was traveling with Carter on a whistle stop on a train. Nowadays, the campaigns would pretend it didn't happen. Uh, But back then, they felt there was a duty to inform the press that was covering the candidate, which was very quaint of them. The Washington Star headline read, "'Carter on sin and lust. I'm human. I'm tempted.'" Candy Stroud, in her book, How Jimmy Won, tells of that day on the campaign trail. Carter was walking through the train and stopped at her seat and brushed her cheek. Yes, Jimmy Carter, with a Playboy interview out about lusting for women— stopped and brushed her cheek, and she asked, What's Mrs. Carter going to say when she finds out you've lusted after other women? Carter kept walking, but did turn around with a grin and responded, She knows! Jody Powell, the governor's press secretary, quickly was surrounded by reporters, and he lit up a Salem cigarette, for these were the days when everyone could smoke and have a good time, and said anyone who's never done anything worse than that ought to vote for someone else. He was asked, Powell was, about the use of the word screw and shack up. Where does the word screw come in, asked a reporter. Somewhere in the shack, I guess, said Powell. Asked about the reaction, Powell said, Well, I suppose you'll have some Republican committee woman stand up somewhere and scream screwers out of the White House. Other than that, not much. But it was a problem for Carter, and it was a problem for the campaign. Carter had been supported by the pro-life religious leaders in the Catholic and Baptist Church, and... This was the sort of early formation of the religious right, and they thought this was not right. And this led to a series of uncomfortable questions for Rosalind, the candidate's wife, who was asked if she too had lusted in her heart. She did not answer to that question. She was also asked various ways in which Carter had told her of the women he'd lusted after. One of these women apparently was Elizabeth Taylor, according to uh, Stroud in her book. She writes about an instance in which Jimmy Carter was seated across from the movie actress, movie star, uh, and was so smitten with her that he was just kind of staring at her like a lost dog. And at one point, there was a pause long enough to shake him out of his zombie-like stare, and he realized that what had happened is she had asked him a question. And he said, "'I'm sorry, Mrs. Taylor. I'm, I'm sure you were talking to me, but I didn't hear a word that you said.'" In the end, Rosalind explained what the lengthy article was about. She said he was telling people that God does not expect anybody to be perfect and he forgives you for things if you have a personal relationship with God. But that wasn't the only problem with the article for Carter. I mean, that was the huge problem. But what Carter, while he was sending his religious supporters to their prayers, he was also undermining his support within the Democratic Party because in the article he had accused LBJ of lying, cheating and distorting the truth. So he was now basically bashing a Democrat in his own party, which was going to make it very difficult for him to carry Texas, where LBJ was considered a hero. Carter later said, I think it really hurt us. It demonstrated a confirmation of Ford's proposal to the American people that I was not quite to be trusted, that I was not what I was supposed to be, and that in some ways I was misleading the American voters. This all burbled up before that first debate, and as they headed into the first debate, Carter who was uh, presenting himself as the outsider, not tainted by Watergate or the ickiness of Washington. And just to show you how little has changed in our in our politics, this was the posture that Carter was taking right before that first debate. The people of our country don't trust the government to be responsive to their needs. They think the government responds to special interests and has in the past to large corporations and contributors. Jimmy Carter has no obligations. Jimmy Carter was nominated with no strings attached. Ford was running in that before that first debate on experience. He knew what it took to be president. And Carter was too green. As the candidates milled around before the debate, Carter's campaign manager, Hamilton Jordan, said to reporters, I've been out buying up Playboy magazines all day long. I've bought up close to 3,000. Jimmy Carter walked by carrying his clothes over his shoulder in a a garment bag. That was one of Carter's big deals that he carried his own luggage. He wasn't too good. You know, he wasn't so fancy. Um, And Donald Trump mentioned that fact in this year's campaign. He said, people don't want to see presidents carrying around or potential presidents carrying around their bags. They want people who are sort of above it. They don't gather that anybody carries Mr. Trump's bags. What's in the bag? A spectator yelled at Carter. My Superman cape and overalls, he responded. Heading into the debate, Carter had gone over some briefing books, but he'd largely prepared alone. Ford, on the other hand, knowing how far he was behind and knowing this was his big free media moment, had done the opposite. And it again set the standard for what debate preparation is like now. He had stand-ins for Carter. He uh, prepared with a mock debate set up in the White House theater. He um, videotaped his performances and then critiqued them afterwards with his aides. And... Carter just kind of hit the books a little, uh, but didn't do anything like that kind of rigorous preparation beforehand. So before the first debate begins, the two men come out, stand behind the lectern, and a raven-haired stage manager asked the president to test his microphone. And when Ford did so, he said, I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to it. You are a very attractive stage manager. Gerald, you cheeky little devil. So this was either Gerald Ford being just flirty with the attractive stage manager or the most clever, undermining human in the earth because, of course, the audience erupted with laughter, not thinking it creepy, I guess, but also, this was the 70s after all, but also, what if it was a shot at Carter? So Ford was trying to get into his head by, you know, lusting after the stage manager in front of Carter. So was he trying to kind of undo Carter by uh, making reference to Carter's own lustful thoughts uh, in the Playboy interview? Carter appeared with his tie askew uh, and uh, seemed a little frantic and jumpy. His first answer was rambling as they went through the 90-minute debate. He talked about the bureaucratic mess and the lack of leadership and Ford's insensitivity to the unemployed. He also said that Mr. Ford, so far as I know, except for avoiding another Watergate, has not accomplished one single major program for this country. Ford said that Carter lacked the details and the specifics for most of his proposals and he accused him, uh, Carter, of playing fast and loose with the facts. Ford was on the defensive having to defend his pardon of Nixon. Saying, the reason the pardon was given was that when I took office, this country was in a very divided condition. It seems to me that if I was to effectively handle the problems of high inflation, a growing recession, the involvement of the U.S. still in Vietnam, that I had to give it 100% of my time to those major problems. It seemed to me that Mr. Nixon had been penalized enough by his resignation and disgrace, and the need and necessity for me to concentrate on the problems of this country fully justified the action that I took. Carter was fine, but he was not... Remember the expectations going into this debate. Democrats had a kind of youthful, vigorous man. I mean, he was so vigorous, he was lusting after women. Uh, And and Ford was the great bumbler. So when Ford didn't show up and be the bumbler, he looked pretty good. One striking thing, when the debate is all over, no one has asked Carter about the Playboy interview. Greg uh, Schneiders, who is one of... President Carter, well, then Governor Carter's men, um, his staffer, went to a nearby bar called the Locust Bar while the debate was going on, where 11 blue-collar men were watching. And when it was completed, he asked the men around him who had won, and they said Ford. Ford's pollster, Robert Teeter, had hooked voters up to dials to see what their reactions were in real time as they, as they listened to the candidates, and more of the warm feelings were going towards Ford when he spoke. And in a Roper poll conducted after the debate, 39% said Ford had won. 30% said Carter had won, and the remaining 30% were undecided. The Today Show, the next morning, stopped people on the street on the way to to work. And in Houston, Cleveland, Chicago, and New York, the sample showed that Ford had done overwhelmingly well compared to Carter. And then, finally, the last bit of evidence, CBS, 37% said uh, Ford had won, and Carter had only won, according to 24%. Most important, by the time this all got fed into the public consciousness, Ford had cut Carter's 33-point lead from the previous summer, and it was now down to around 15 points. And so here, why did all this happen? Well, Norval Reese, who was a top Democratic political aide, wrote to the Carter campaign and said, Ford was perceived the winner because the public expectation of Ford the bumbler was much lower than the same public's expectation of Carter the efficient. Carter's strongest card was his weakness in the debate, his personal appeal, and calm self-assurance. He seemed so preoccupied with the need to demonstrate knowledge that he came across as cold and inhuman. Whoever told Carter not to smile so much and look more serious should take a vacation until November 2nd. Finally, the memo concluded, Carter had to show more humanity, how his policies connected to regular people. I know I'm talking style and not substance, but that's where Carter is going to win here. No one likes Ford. Carter can only lose if they decide they don't like him any better either. So this is important for a couple of reasons. One, remember when we uh, when we talked about Carter's uh, "quote unquote" malaise speech, the crisis of confidence speech. Remember what Bill Clinton's advice to Carter was, and this was in the episode where we talked about the Carter. And Kennedy uh, fight, interparty fight in the 1980s. Remember, the advice was that Carter had become seen by the people as too much of a technocrat; that he had no connection with people's feelings, and no connection with uh, any way to describe how he felt about them and the passion that he was going to put towards trying to fix their problems. And so that problem, which he had in office, is underscored here by the reaction to the first debate. It also is important to remember how expectations play into these debates. So it was, it was Carter was not a very good performer in that first debate, but it wasn't catastrophic. It's just that everybody thought Ford would do so much more horribly. And so by expectations, he did a lot better than people have thought. On the stump, after the first debate, Carter started attacking Ford for leadership that has been bogged down in Washington for the last 25 or 30 years, deriving its advice, counsel, and financial support from lobbyists and special interests. That, of course, sounds familiar, but it had more sting because of Watergate. And that, of course, in everybody's mind was the idea that a president could use the government as his personal plaything. When Ford pardoned Nixon, of course, it reanimated those ideas. On October 1st, the Gallup poll showed that Carter's lead... Uh, was down to just eight on October 4th. These are polls taken after that first debate. The Yankelovich poll had the two men tied. Now, all the momentum is going to Ford, but, or I should say Butts. he ran into his own little problem between the first and the second debate. His agriculture secretary, Earl Butts, was on a plane ride with the singer Pat Boone and... John Dean, who had worked in the Nixon administration, of course, and played such a big role in those Watergate hearings. Nixon was right. Excuse me. John Dean was writing a story for Rolling Stone. And so he is on the plane with Pat Boone and Earl Butz, the agriculture secretary for Ford, and they're talking politics. And Butz says that blacks won't vote for the Republican Party. And this is the way it showed up in print. Butz used vulgar words in saying that many blacks don't vote Republican because they only want good sex, loose shoes, and a warm place when they use the toilet. The actual quote is much uh, more graphic than that, and it's offensive uh, in about six different ways. So when this got out, of course, Ford had to fire Butts, and it took a little of the steam out of his what looked like return to kind of stability. Remember the idea is that Ford is hapless and bungling and, and kind of beset by a thousand kinds of problems and that had been dispelled a little bit in that first debate. Now Earl Butts uh, kind of reminds everybody about the snakebit nature of the Ford White House. Second debate in San Francisco is the infamous one. The topic was foreign policy. This was Ford's strong suit. He'd been dealing with these issues all, you know, his professional life and plus he'd worked under Nixon and now he was president and so he had familiarity with all of the issues. Carter had charged that when it came to foreign policy, it was Henry Kissinger was the real president and that was very offensive to Ford and his people because to suggest such a thing that the president wasn't really in charge and that that Kissinger was running the show was an offense to the office and uh, and a baseless charge, much the way people used to say Dick Cheney ran the George W. Bush White House. Carter, in this second debate, needed to show that he knew what he was talking about when it came to international challenges, particularly the great threat from the Soviet Union. And Carter did so in this debate, but his great victory didn't come from anything he said. He was helped by Ford who was asked by New York Times' Max Frankel, who was a Moscow bureau chief at one point, about the Helsinki Accords and whether they, in the Helsinki Accords, which the U.S. had signed, um, whether the Helsinki Accords accepted as a premise the idea that Eastern Europe was dominated by the Soviet Union. And here is what the president responded.
2: I'm glad you raised it, Mr. Uh, Frankel. In the case of Helsinki, 35 nations signed an agreement, including the Secretary of State for the Vatican. I can't under any circumstances believe that the His Holiness, the Pope, would agree by signing that agreement that the 35 nations have turned over to the Warsaw Pact nations, the domination. Of Eastern Europe. It just isn't true. There is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe and there never will be under a Ford administration. I'm sorry, could I just pause? Did I understand you to say, sir, that the Russians are not using Eastern Europe as their own sphere of influence and in occupying? Most of the countries there, and, and, and making sure with their troops that it's a that it's a communist zone. That's I don't believe, uh, Mr. Frankel, that uh, the Yugoslavians consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union. I don't believe that the Romanians consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union. I don't believe that the Poles consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union. Each of those countries is independent, autonomous. It has its own territorial integrity, and the United States does not concede that those countries are under the domination of the Soviet Union.
0: What Ford was trying to say was that the people of Eastern Europe and Poland in particular, which he had said was not under Soviet influence, had an indomitable spirit and that they would never be dominated by the Soviet Union. But nobody really took it that way. They And as you could hear from Max Frankel, who, who is – you can't hear it, but if you were to watch the clip, which you can see on YouTube, he essentially does one of those like cartoon – like like he can't believe what he's hearing. Anyway, John Osborne wrote in White House Watch, The Ford Years, Mr. Ford often fumbles his words. He often says more or less than he meant to say. He has often had to confess later he didn't mean to say exactly what he had said. Never during his presidency, however, had he so completely and disastrously misspoken. Ford's pollster, Robert Teeter, who was watching at home in Ann Arbor, had his tracking polls going, and they confirmed that this was a disaster. Ford went into the debate even with Carter and was slowly gaining, Teeter said, but then we stopped cold, cold. Brent Scrocroft, who was in the... uh, back room where he had been advising Ford was described as ashen-faced when they heard Ford assert this. So Teeter calls Cheney, Dick Cheney, chief of staff, to Gerald Ford and suggests that Ford immediately had to acknowledge his mistake and issue a correction. We're working on it, Cheney said, but here is the crucial thing that we learned from this gaffe. Not, okay, huge gaffe, right? But the bigger problem is that Ford... Refused to correct himself. He said everybody knew what he was talking about and those who didn't were just being purposely obtuse and he wasn't going to budge. James Baker writes about it in his book this way. When you're wounded, you must stop the bleeding immediately. This is the guiding principle of politics. This gaffe had knocked us off message and threatened to keep us there for a long time. I'll interrupt Baker's account here just to remind, this is what Barack Obama Uh, told Tim Russert on Meet the Press after the um, Reverend Wright controversy in which his former pastor was discovered to have said all kinds of things that Barack Obama didn't agree with, and Obama let it fester for a while until he finally gave a speech addressing the issues contained in Reverend Wright's sermons. A lot of people think this is the problem Hillary Clinton has had with her email server, that she didn't rip the Band-Aid off right away, that she's been grudging. And so here we have in the 1976 Helsinki Accords, no Soviet domination of, of Eastern Europe or Poland. By the way, in Poland, I think there were four or five active um, tank Battalions, Soviet tank battalions. I mean, so it wasn't just that they dominated Soviet Europe, I mean Eastern Europe and they were dominating Poland, but they had actual troops there. So we have this great campaign gaffe, but what makes it the great gaff, and oh by the way, remember earlier Baker has defined for us what a real gaff is with the Carter Playboy gaffe because it bounces off every possible constituency and offends them. Ford here could have limited this to a Garden Variety misspeaking if he had immediately after the debate said, oh, well, yeah, well, you know what I mean. I was, I was uh, trying to buck up the spirit of Eastern Europeans and show that we recognize that despite Soviet domination, we know that their indomitable spirit and indomitable will will not be dominable or dominated. Uh, Anyway, back to Baker. Many of us advised the president to meet the press and clarify his remarks. Unfortunately, Henry Kissinger had called after the debate to tell the president what a wonderful job he'd done, which reinforced Ford's view that he didn't need to do anything. After all, we didn't officially recognize that the Soviets had any right to dominate Eastern Europe, and neither did the Eastern Europeans, at least in spirit. Only after it became clear to the president that his campaign was being sidetracked, six agonizing days later, did he speak up. The original mistake was mine, Ford said. I did not express myself clearly. I admit it. As Ford would later write, that was too damn late to have any impact. Delaying was the worst mistake I have ever made politically. I don't know why I was so stubborn. I don't know why I was so stupid in this case. Well, that was it for Ford. His ascent in the polls, Stopped. Now, it didn't totally retreat going into the election. It was still relatively neck and neck, but it was a deadly blow because it put a cast iron lid on his ability to undo the things he had sought to have the debates in the first place to undo, which is this idea of him as a bungling, confused person. There were two more debates. One was the vice presidential debate, which didn't help Ford that much either. Walter Mondale, the uh, running mate of Jimmy Carter, um, senator from Minnesota, squared off against uh, Bob Dole, Kansas senator. And Dole came across as excessively partisan that he got the reputation to further burnish his reputation as a hatchet man. He talked about Democrat, as he used to call them, Democrat wars, the idea being that all of the wounded and dead... Were a result of wars that had happened while Democrats were president. This was uh, seen as desperate and slashing and over the top and beyond the pale. Mondale, on the other hand, looked like he was a pretty uh, 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 fit person for the national stage. He knew what he was talking about, he was congenial. Um, And so uh, that was another blow to the Ford campaign. Then we come to the third presidential debate, which was, by all accounts, a total snoozer. Uh, The press corps basically checked out in the middle of the debate, uh, and Stroud writes in her book that they started making jokes in the audience. And as Ford looked down at one point, uh, appearing to take notes, as he had throughout these debates, the famous newspaper scribbler Curtis Wilkie said, he's not writing, he's coloring. So there we go. Ford is now the butt of the jokes again. But because Carter had established himself as the president's equal, and that was the whole point for him in these debates. It wasn't, remember going back to that original strategy memo, that Carter just needed to prove that he was a good enough replacement for somebody who the people wanted to get rid of anyway in Ford. So in that sense, Carter came away uh, uh, as the winner. It is notable, though, in the third debate that that Playboy interview did come up again. And here we'll listen to Jimmy Carter talk about it, and say something we never hear candidates much say.
1: I've been campaigning for 22 months. I've made some mistakes. And I think this is uh, uh, part of, a, of just being a human being. I, I have to say that my campaign's been an open one. And uh, the Playboy thing has been of a, a great, very great concern to me. I don't know how to deal with it exactly. Uh, I uh, agreed to give the interview uh, to Playboy, other people have done it who are notable, uh, Governor Jerry Brown, uh, Walter Cronkite, uh, Albert Schweitzer, Mr. Ford's own Secretary of Treasury, Mr. Simon, uh, William Buckley, many other people, but they weren't running for president. And in retrospect, from hindsight, I would not have given that uh, interview had I, to do it, had, I, had I to do it over again. If I should ever decide in the future to discuss my deep Christian beliefs and uh, condemnation and sinfulness, I'll use another forum besides Playboy. But I can say this. Uh, I'm doing the best I can to get away from that. And during the next uh, 10 days, the American people will not see the Carter campaign running uh, television advertisements and newspaper advertisements based on a personal attack on President Ford's character. I believe that the opposite is true with President Ford's campaign.
0: So what's striking about that is that Carter says he doesn't quite know what to do with the problem. No candidate is ever allowed anymore to say that they have a problem they don't have a solution to. In the end, wrote Carter, if it hadn't been for the debates, I would have lost. They established me as competent on foreign and domestic affairs and gave the viewers reason to think that Jimmy Carter had something to offer. Now, every presidential candidate and every president has to endure the debates, and we can thank Jimmy Carter and particularly the desperate Gerald Ford for giving us this fall entertainment in our political theater. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at whistlestop whistlestopatslake.com or leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word and gives your host something to do while he's trying to break his writer's block. Thanks to our sponsor this week, The Great Courses. It's back. It's back as a sponsor. We're very happy. And here's what you get from The Great Courses. You can get any one of these four business and presentation courses. I'll remind you what they are again, Scientific Secrets for a Powerful Memory, How Conversation Works, The Art of Public Speaking, Influence, Mastering Life's Most Powerful Skill. Any of those four you get for $9.95. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. Our producer is Mike Wollo for this episode. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com/panoply. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who is not now nor never has been dominated by the Soviet Union. I will be back in 2 weeks. I am John Dickerson and thanks very much for listening.